Welcome back to the MetaMinds podcast. We're all about helping you master your mindset. My name is Dan and I am a fully qualified counsellor. And my name is Eamon and I run a video production business. And on today's episode, we have Dr. Holly Richmond with us. She is a somatic psychologist, certified sex therapist and sex tech consultant. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I guess the first question, uh, why, why sex therapy and somatic psychology? What interested you in that area? Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm going to keep this as short as possible. Um, when I, uh, to, to become a licensed therapist, you have to choose an internship site. And I chose to do most of my 3,000 hours at a rape crisis center. And I quickly learned that I was taught well how to treat trauma, but I wasn't taught how to treat the what comes next. And for me, that's how survivors have healthy sex and healthy relationships. So that led me to, okay, I need to study this. So that led me to the sex therapy route. Um, And I would say at this point, probably 60 or 70% of my practice is still with survivors, but I do a little bit of everything else too, just because I felt the need to diversify and talk about couples issues and, and more general sex therapy issues. Working with survivors is, is fantastic, uh, but it's also, it can get hard. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it could for sure. Um, so you said that you've kind of bridged into more general kind of sex therapy outside of that. Is most of your, is most of your therapy done online or in person or is it a mixture? How does that work? Yeah, it's mostly 90% online. Um, I started working on the sex tech stuff about four years ago, and I just felt like, okay, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and see how therapy goes almost 100% remotely. And I'm also licensed in three states in the U.S., so for that reason, my, my people are everywhere. I do some international work as well. So working online works great. Um, It's interesting. I feel like the therapy room was one of the last like holdouts for, oh my gosh, we're not going the technological route. Uh, In my experience, it's been fantastic. And once I can get clients over that hump of doing something different, they're like, oh my gosh, this is actually better because it's more convenient. Um, In big cities like New York or LA, getting somewhere can be a pain in the ass anyway. So they just get to do it from the comfort of their own home. So yeah, to answer your question, mostly online. Mm. And and how would you say the, the the clients respond to? Obviously, it's more convenient by the sounds of it, but it's also still a relatively new frontier, I guess, to do a lot online. So, how do you find clients responding to doing things online? Mostly great. Um, it, the hang up, I will be honest, is with my somatic focus. So, somatic psychology for any of your listeners out there that don't know, it means body psychology. So I really pay as much attention to what my clients are showing me with body language or somatic cues as to what they're telling me. That does get a little tricky online because I'm relying mostly on like, you know, chest up cues. So I can notice when they avert their eyes or when there's a shrug of the shoulders or when they're looking up or looking down, but I miss the rest of the body. So that um, it hasn't been a struggle yet, but it's a piece of information that I don't get. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that would be huge if you're not physically present with someone like you can really gain much more of like a sense of that. So I suppose my, my question is like, you know, being online and that kind of thing, like, because it's a a bit more of a taboo kind of topic and perhaps people are a little bit more scared to face this topic, whether 
you know, whether they're, you know, a survivor or, you know, they just have issues that they need to work through. Do you think that it's better online because there's less of a barrier for them to kind of take that step or what are your thoughts on that? Both to answer your question, like super honestly, both for some working online, I have some clients who only want to talk to me on the phone. Like that's as much as they can possibly give me because they're just not ready to be seen or for me to see them like looking at them in the face. So the phone is where we have to go. And I use that for other clients. I'm like, Oh man, I really want to get in a room with you because I could see the rest of the story. I could see what else is happening. And I do have an office in New York. I just, to be honest, I don't have to use it that much because most of my clients are so happy with the work we do online. And once they get into the groove of that, they're like, this is just, this is better. This is easier, but I will do intensive. So if they're in the area, I'm like, can you come in for a two or three hour? We'll just like really sink deep into this so I can see you and we'll do that work. And then the rest of the time we can meet online. So I think that balance of mostly online, if I can get you once a quarter or even twice a year in person for a good chunk of time, like that is the ideal scenario. Mm, Fair enough. So like, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your training like revolved around working with survivors. Like, you know, I can imagine like, you know, a lot of people in the kind of therapy space, like they kind of, you know, take on a lot of the, you know, they have to see a lot of the trauma and that kind of thing. Like, is there anything that you kind of do or do you have someone that you go to talk to to kind of get this off your chest or do you handle it really well? Like I can imagine it would be quite a lot to kind of take on to, to see a lot of these, these things that, that people come to you for. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to admit, I was not good at it in the beginning. And beginning, I mean, like first four years. So I'm a good decade past into it. It's easier now. And that feels kind of horrible to say because it's not hearing the stories doesn't get any easier. But I think I've just developed a container to put those and I do my own work. So I write, I do talk to someone. Um, and it just, I think it feels more hopeful because I have more experience seeing the outcome of where the clients are going. I don't get stuck where they are. Like my job is to pull them out of where they are and see where they're going. I can more easily go directly there. So I don't get as sad. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, just in general, like in terms of uh, like the conversation around sex, what what kind of what kind of conversations do you think need to happen more in the space of sex and and healthy sexuality as well? Because because yes. we don't we don't really get you know any education. I don't know what it's like in the US, but like in terms of Australia, we don't really we maybe get like one or two classes on the mm. subject, and it's really embarrassing the the actual education that we get. Just to add on to the end yeah, of that question, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you went exactly where I was going to go. It needs to start with education. And I would venture to say we're probably in worse shape than Australia. Like I just, I, we get, most get none. Most states have none and some states get abstinence, you know, like abstinence is the model of education, which good luck with that. Yeah. Um, so we need to start there. And if we can't start there, I think it's up to parents right? We have to start having these uncomfortable conversations with our kids and you need to start doing it at an age way younger than you would anticipate. So different studies show different things, but kids on average are seeing porn between the ages of nine and 12. So that is their sex education. And you know, and I know porn is not an accurate description of what sex looks like or feels like or any of those things. 
Um, I'm not anti-porn at all, but I'm anti-knowing the difference between entertainment and education. And I think with our kids, it's just like, this is great, but this is not real life at all. Here's what I think sex could be for you. And here's the things I want you to think about. And it's not just the don't get pregnant and don't get an STI. Like, where's the, ple- where's the conversation about pleasure? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, enjoying the experience. You know, there's the, the one scene in, in the American movie that, that comes to mind where it's like, you know, someone in a class and they've got a cucumber or a banana and they're putting the condom on the, you know, like yeah. that, that's it. That's <laughs> like that's it. Yeah. my only perception <laughs> on the matter, you know? So you mentioned porn and you mentioned that you're not like anti-porn. Like, do you have, uh, you know, any thoughts on, you know, potentially how that, cause if, you know, if someone's consuming that at the age of nine and you're, you're a young boy or whatever, that obviously, shapes your perceptions and, you know, gets into your dopamine and serotonin, that kind of thing. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Should, should people not be consuming it or? Um, I, I can definitely go out and say, I don't think a nine-year-old should be consuming it at all. Um, how to prevent that though? That's a whole nother story. Like it's just where we are with technology. That's a, that's a tough call. Um, again, I think, and I hate to put the burden totally on parents, but we have to just be paying attention. And even, of course, we can't be there 24-7, but having the conversation about, hey, have your friends shown you this yet? Have you seen any pornographic images? Was that scary for you? What did you think of it? I want to tell you what I think of it. I think it's, it's fine. I don't want you looking at it at this age, but it's not real life at all. You know, so just, I think just being honest with it. And you're right, it does change perceptions um, for boys and girls. Uh, I think the damage is it's a performance-based model. So to be super clear, porn is all about performance and entertainment. So you have this perfect looking body and you have a really big dick and you last for half an hour or 40 minutes. Like that doesn't happen. Most people look normal and the average size of a penis is 5.5 inches and the average length of intercourse penetrative sex is around five minutes. I honestly think that's a little bit high. I think it's closer to three minutes. And for women, same thing. I think women, especially though, get hung up on the body image. So that's what I'm supposed to look like. That's what I'm supposed to sound like. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to have anal sex on the first date. I'm supposed to let him come on my face all the time. Like those are the, the not so great messages we get from porn. And again, um, totally sex positive. All sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. I have nothing against those sexual things that I just talked about at all. Um, are they like a first time sexual experience for teens? No, definitely not. Yeah. Okay. And I guess that like you are alluding to kind of comes back to education again. It comes back to educating people or, or kids early as well, because uh, especially I'm sure uh, the the age as well for people to con- consume porn potentially could also be getting uh, younger, maybe if, if smartphones are becoming more readily available to all different ages. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's a concern for, like you said, the parents at the forefront. But then I guess you could really also put it on the school system as well to maybe educate a lot more as well. But if it's public schools, yeah. I can't really, you can't, can't really. That. Yeah. yeah. So, and like, you know, you mentioned like it is maybe an awkward conversation or whatever for a parent to have, but at the same time, like it's such an important conversation that it could change your child's entire life that it's like, just push the awkwardness aside for 30 seconds because it's like, it literally, yeah, as I said, it's going to change their whole life, which is quite crazy to me. So mm. yeah, it, it is like, I couldn't agree more. Um, 
So yeah, just getting parents comfortable talking about it, but that means the parents have to be comfortable with their own sexuality. Mm. Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. How many, yeah, how many parents do we think? I don't know. I think it's getting better, but I still think this the area of sexuality is is hard for a lot of people to examine. Yeah. Yeah. And especially like, you know, in this day and age in particular, you know, we're, we're in like kind of the, the younger, the app generation, like the, the kind of dating landscape is a very interesting one where it's like you just see images on a phone and you're like swiping left and right, judging based on looks alone, you know? So it's like for this generation, people don't as much go out and actually just talk to another person. So it's kind of over-sexualized from the beginning. It's like you look at a person, you judge based on their looks, whether or not you will have sexual intercourse with them or, but it, you know, you don't really think about it. It's like, Oh, I wonder if that person likes to, you know, go and play the same sports as I do. It's just yeah. like, that's not at the forefront of your mind. So it's kind of like sex is really pushed forward, especially in this kind of dating scene. So I suppose like what kind of problems have you seen or heard about in the current kind of generation of like, yeah, um, dating scene, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably the the problems that come into my office are those performance based problems. Um, for sure, for men, I treat compulsivity with with porn a lot. Um, I don't believe in sex addiction. If we want to have that conversation, I'm happy to have it as well. But it's it's the porns. It's what I should look like, how long I should last, what I should be doing. Um, and for, for women too, again, just those expectations, those standards that are completely based in performance and education instead of, um, I'm sorry, performance and entertainment instead of pleasure and education. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I think I, one thing that I've told some parents of, you know, early teens, two questions that I love are what do you want to get out of sex and how do you want to feel? Mm. Right. So like when we, when we just break it down, are you just looking for an orgasm? Are you looking for connection? Are you looking for validation? Like what is it that you want from this first sexual experience or from, from some of your first sexual experiences? Mm. So be curious, be curious with your kids. They've got a lot to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there's a few ways I was going to go here, but I guess like we're still kind of on technology right now. So we haven't really spoken about, uh, like you being a sex tech consultant. So I'd be really interested to hear a little bit more about that and, and what that actually is, like what that entails and, and what your role is with that. Yeah, it's um, it, it's still really interesting to me because I'm not a technophile, uh, but I remember very distinctly, probably, I don't know, four or five years ago now, watching a show and just a news program about VR and I literally just kind of sat up was like, that could change everything for sex. So I started investigating VR, uh, virtual reality. And it took me, I'm not even kidding, a few months to figure out why I was so excited about this. And it's because it's somatic, right? Like with VR, we're not just watching, we're experiencing. And that's what I do as a somatic psychologist. It's more about body sensations and experiencing rather than just talking. Um, so I just kind of started following the thread of VR um, I wrote a script uh, in VR for women's pleasure, um, but then got pulled kind of in the sex bot direction and created a program um, using some of the the um, the latest AI sex bots. Uh, now I would say most of my job is consulting on programs, apps that people develop in the sexual health market. So I just consulted on one for 
new parents. So it was an app about getting a couple back together sexually after the birth of a baby. Um, there's other things along sexual health, like fertility. So it's really just consulting on projects where people are creating these, these really interesting platforms around sexual wellness. Mm, for sure. And I think a lot of the technology, you know, hasn't peaked yet. Just a lot of these ideas, they're kind of like just poking their head out and they're not really, not really fully formed yet. But I think a lot of these ideas potentially are going to transform, you know, the sex industry and, and again, how males and females interact. So it's like, very interesting that, that you're staying on top of that, I suppose. No, no pun intended. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so question a little bit left of field. Um, are you familiar with Dr. Christopher Ryan's work? Yes. Cool. So for those that are listening and, and don't know, so he's got a book called uh, Sex at Dawn, which was quite a controversial book. And basically he goes over a lot of different, uh, not ancient, but older cultures and how a lot of them weren't monogamous, for example, like everyone would just have, you know, intercourse. And if a child was made, then it was just everyone's child. And there was like a research done and how, you know, a lot of those uh, cultures were happier and that kind of thing. And so basically he puts forward the fact, uh, the the theory that humans aren't traditionally mono- like monogamous and that, um, you know, humans have kind of made up that idea, whether it's based on the economy or whatever it may be. So I would love to know what your thoughts are on on that. Yeah, now Christopher Ryan, he's right behind me here on, on my bookshelf. Um, yeah. And then there's so many people after him. Um, Esther Perel talks about, you know, this, this notion of what marriage was and what it really is. Um, Wednesday Martin just wrote a book called Untrue about, you know, women's desire and, and the truth behind that. So we've got these great thinkers on this subject. What do I think? Um, I think... <laughs> conventional idea of marriage works great for some people and it doesn't work so well for some people. I mean, if we look at the divorce rates, um, we're about 50, 50 there. Uh, and so many of the couples that come to me are in sexless marriages, which means they're having sex less than 10 times a year, or they're in low sex marriages, which means they're having sex less than 25 times a year. Generally, somebody in that couple is not happy about that. Um, is that because of the institution of marriage? Is it because of novelty, which I, I mean, really novelty is, is so much sitting in the seat of human desire. Like we, we, we crave new. And if our partner isn't really willing to come along on this, on the journeys of new and the j- journeys of discoveries, I think for some people, they feel stuck. Mm. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. And I suppose like, you know, Wednesday Martin as well, like she's kind of, exposed that and given given power to kind of women in the fact that you know traditionally like the social convention is that men are the ones that that want sex and women are the ones that 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 give the sex and they don't really enjoy it or whatever and she kind of proposed the idea that women actually enjoy sex more than men and in fact prefer non-monogamy over men and you know would like to have more multiple sexual partners over men and that kind of thing and i think it's interesting to yeah bring a lot more of that kind of information to the the forefront. Would you agree with a lot of her uh, theories or? I, I do agree. I, I absolutely do agree. But women traditionally, we just don't have permission to say what we want because of the social taboos around it, around it, getting called a slut or a whore. Um, I think consensual non-monogamy can work so well for some people. And I can just talk about in my practice, it can be a beautiful jumping off place to bring a couple closer The problem is when you're not starting with a strong foundation and one person wants to open up the marriage and the other doesn't, 
So then that's where you're, you may be misaligned. So it really takes two people with an open mind and a shitload of security in that relationship. So like secure attachment between the couples that I can go and do and you can go and do, but we always come back to each other and the relationship is never threatened. I think that's a beautiful model. Um, polyamory works for some people. Like it's just, it can be set up differently for so many people. And I just, I think these, these big thinkers that we've been talking about just let us know that we're not broken or wrong if that's something that we're craving. Mm, yeah. And I suppose, yeah, you know, communication, having a strong kind of foundation of it. And I suppose it's like, you know, scary for the people that are trying to do that thing or think that they want something else and experiment. And it's great that we have a lot of these, you know, newer public figures like, you know, Whitney Miller and um, Aubrey yeah. Marcus, for example. Um, you know, they, they bring these ideas to the forefront, just allow you to, yeah, feel that it's more normal than you think it is, you know. And again, it comes back to education, I suppose, because if you think that you want that thing, but then everybody is telling you that that's not what you should want, then all of a sudden you don't feel kind of aligned with reality. So mm. I suppose it's good that, yeah, these ideas are coming to the forefront, you know. I do too. And it just gives people another option because this has been going on forever and it will go on forever, but it was called cheating before. Like if we can do it without the lies and secrecy, um, oh my gosh. I mean, it would just, as far as my practice goes, it would solve so many problems. Yeah. Mm. And um, like, I guess for your work as well, like you're working, like you said, predominantly online and then you do some sessions um, in person as well. And we've, we've touched on how communication and education can be key for, uh, you know, starting this, uh, this process into more of a, a modern kind of sex day where it isn't as taboo and, and you can talk about these things and you can uh, kind of work through it. Um, I guess I'm curious for like people who aren't going to see maybe a sex therapist or who aren't going to a somatic psychologist or do, don't maybe have the money for that. What, what kind of things could you recommend besides the communication um, for people who want to kind of improve their sex lives or have a healthier sex life or feel better about um, sex in general, I guess? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, and I think it has to start with the person themselves. It's amazing to me how many people come in wanting to fix the relationship with ever, without ever examining what's happening for them. So this is, that's a long way of saying, like, know what you want, know what you need, know what you like. Like really stop and ask yourself, what turns me on? What do I find sexy? Know the difference between a desire, like something that just feels sexy and makes you want and arousal, those, those physiological sensations that you need. Um, I, I do something called creating a sexual template with my clients that really just digs into them figuring out every little nuance of their sexual expression in the moment. And of course, this is always morphing and changing, but I feel like it, it, it has to start with yourself and then it has to start with being able to communicate that to your partner in a way that it doesn't feel shaming for you. And then also listening to your partner's needs and wants without getting defensive or pathologizing them. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Because guess, often like, like with the, yeah, the consensual non-monogamy, I see the hackles go up so quickly and it's the thought of, oh my God, I'm not enough. So he or she needs something more. And it's not, you're not enough. It's just in addition to, right? It's not a replacement for, it's in addition to when we're talking about those consensual non-monogamy models. Yeah, And again, like expectations and, you know, communication kind of thing, which is much easier said than done. 
But it's again, it's like if one person's expectation is based on like porn, for example, and another person's expectation is based on their last level or whatever, and you haven't communicated those things, then it's just going to be a nightmare. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. yeah, definitely. Um, so to pull it back to uh, the, I, I guess, because you mentioned uh, you've had a lot of trauma work that you've gone through, uh, and we were talking about that a little bit, but um, I guess. One thing that I'm um, guess I'm curious about within that space is how how can you f- work through finding meaning uh, sexually with with someone after experience like sexual assault, discomfort, infidelity, or, or whatever kind of trauma they go through. I guess I'm curious like what kind of work do do you do to to help someone find a meaningful sexual connection after such a devastating event? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. Um, so again, we have, it starts with the person themselves. You know, I definitely, I'm very like, I work individually and then I'm like, let's get this solid and then work on the relationship if, if it's, if I'm able to do it that way. Um, so it's establishing safety, right? So our, my, my first job is to establish safety, control and security and get the person, the survivor very much grounded in that and knowing that they can rely on themselves then it's separating the past from the present. That was then, this is now. And then at that point, that's when we get to cultivate like the what's next, the what ifs, using their imagination, using eroticism to, to dream. But you can't do that without that foundation of safety. So it's really, it's starting there. Um, again, helping them pull apart the past and the present. Focus on pleasure. Uh, it still blows my mind how many women in particular have never really taken their own pleasure into consideration when when thinking about the sex life that they want. Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, just quickly on the live cast community, if you guys have any questions, I, we, I know we've missed a few comments through here, but if you have any questions so far, like we'd love to hear hear from you guys. And just to kind of lead on uh, with Holly, You've touched on a few of these, but I'm, I'm curious about what common misconceptions do you think are out there about sex? There's, there's already a lot that you've touched on, um, yeah. but anything that you think we've maybe missed or that we could add to? It's hmm, a great question. Let me think about that for a minute. Um, so again, just really like separating out the performance versus pleasure. So if I can get rid of everybody's shoulds, um, I feel like if there's a should in a conversation about sex, we really need to look at that and put it back in that sex positive frame. All sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. Um, a misconception that that everyone comes into me with is that they are weird or broken. <laughs> and I still, they're not, and I still have not figured out what normal sex is. So many people sit down and they're like, I just want to have normal sex. And I'm like, well, well, what is that? So, you know, because I haven't seen it yet. If, if you know what it is, please let me know. Um, uh, on the trauma front, one huge misconception is that it can't happen more than once. Um, so I have several survivors where they experience maybe sexual abuse as a child, and then they experience another sexual trauma as an adult. Um, it definitely can happen more than once. Um, trying to think of anything else. Uh, one, one thing that's surprising for people, a lot of my trauma survivors, when they have fantasies, they'll have rape fantasies. So that's often really hard for them to admit to me and for us to pull apart. But when you think about it, when you 
dig deep into that, it makes sense because in our fantasy, we completely control that. We know where that story is going. So, you know, we get to craft the end how we want to craft it. Um, but yeah, there's so much, there's so much with survivors. That's so interesting. I just had a question that uh, popped into my head. So like um, with like a lot of the newer kind of feminism movement, perhaps some of the more left feminism movement, um, uh, like a lot of them uh, pushing for like the whole free the knit movement, for example, and like allowing women to walk around, you know, topless and that kind of thing. And like, from my point of view, like, I, I, I mean, I suppose breasts are like, uh, like, you know, sexualized as a social convention. But from my point of view, like breasts are a sexual thing and I think forever will be. So I think like, you know, cause men can walk around without their shirts off, but like, I think the male like top half of their body isn't really sexualized. So, you know, a lot, a lot of, yeah, left feminists are kind of pushing for the, like women should be able to walk around with their, with their like boobs out or whatever. It's like, I don't think that is a good idea because breasts are, sexualized what are you what are your thoughts on that i mean breasts are sexualized they're gorgeous um but they're also like biological and reproductive right (laughs) like if we if we dial it way back um i i mean i'm all for it i'm gonna push back on you a little bit like are you saying it could be dangerous like are you saying if women walk around without shirts it could be dangerous well no so i think like regardless like if men see you know curvature of a woman like that is like naturally um arousing for them so i think it's like you know well it well you know i love i love breasts like i'm all for it like whatever but i don't think it's very like practical because i think you know no matter what it it is something that is like sexualized by men so it's just going to add like confusion and you know what i mean like yes i i totally do um but men should be able to control themselves, right? So like if we, if we go to the worst case scenario of, oh my God, if men see women walking around without their shirts on, they won't be able to control themselves. Like bullshit. Men need to learn how to control themselves. Yeah. If it's a matter of focus, I mean, if you saw enough boobs after like two weeks, you probably might start noticing them less, right? No. But because it's taboo now, like it sounds super intriguing, Um I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. Um, after breastfeeding two kids, I don't know if I want to walk around with my shirt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I suppose, I suppose it is a social convention. And just to add on that, like I go to a lot of music festivals and it is a bit kind of free reign there. So, you know, a lot of people yeah. do walk around naked or whatever. And, and you're right after, you know, two or three days, like you don't even think about it. It's just normal kind of thing. So I suppose that does answer the question. It is just like a, a heavily conditioned social convention, but an interesting one, nonetheless, it just popped into my head. So I thought I'd, thought I'd ask it. Yeah. So um, another question is uh, something I've been seeing a lot of online, you know, like pretty much anyone can start a YouTube channel on like self-help or just like talking about their own experience, which is fantastic, getting out more ideas out there and that kind of thing. And something I've been hearing about and reading about quite a lot recently is uh, semen retention. Um, so I don't know if you've heard about that, but basically, you know, they talk about like if men, you know, because uh, semen is essentially life, you know, so, and your body works really hard to create that life. So what, what they, they theorize is that if you retain that and only let that out when your intention is to actually have a child. So I suppose this goes into the, um, the tantric kind of realm. Um, then it's going to, yeah, you're going to have more energy and more life and that kind of thing. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or experience on that, I suppose. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I've had several clients who um, have, have kind of played around with that a little bit and come in with, with the idea like this is great. And, and I'm not saying it's not great if it works for you. And I really, I haven't had men do it for procreation purposes. I've had them do it for pleasure purposes. So they say to me, if I don't come for three weeks, my orgasm then is like off the charts. It's amazing. It's great. I'm like, okay, good. Then keep, keep doing that. If it works for you, I think from a medical and biological perspective, um, I don't, I don't know because I know what I do know is sex begets sex. So the more sex we have, the more sex we want. And that's because of dopamine and endorphins and oxytocin. Um, I know having orgasms is good for men. There's a protective factor against prostate cancer. Uh, we know the same thing in women. The more orgasms you have, the more you'll want pelvic floor strengthener. And also you're getting that good dose of hormones. Um, so I guess your question is, is it healthy or are the orgasms stronger with semen retention? The orgasms will be stronger. Yes. Is it healthier? No. There's my, there's my answer. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Um, Do it if you want to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. I love that. <laughs> yeah. That, that's it. And you kind of mentioned it before, like as long as it's consensual and it feels good and you're not hurting anyone, like, you know, how about it? Go, go for it basically. Um, and you kind of have touched on this a little bit, but um, the idea of having a, a relationship with uh, mismatched libidos, so potentially different kind of desires or different kind of needs, I guess. Um, and, and how do you think you can find uh, a sexual a sexual balance that is, is healthy? And I, it kind of all goes back to communication, but is there anything else in there about this mismatched libido that um, you have thoughts on? Like does... Does diet affect uh, libido? Are there other things that can potentially uh, improve that with your partner or with whoever you're with? Yeah, for sure. And that's, it's a great question. And you're right. Communication on the emotional front. So I usually, through my lens, I separate things into the physiological and the emotional, and then I bring them together. So the emotional, you're spot on, like manage expectations and communicate and see if there's a middle ground. On the physiological front, for sure, diet, for sure, exercise, um, you know, medications. We know that those affect libido, whether it's um, a mood stabilizer, high blood pressure medication is going to affect erections. There's so much that can affect erections, diabetes, uh, whether you're overweight, blood flow. So this so much can come back to diet and exercise. Um, I've had a few men who are on high soy diets and noticed a drop in libido because of the estrogen that's present. Um, again, I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't say that that was true, but in their experience, reducing the amount of soy they ate helped with their libido. Right. As a vegan, I would love to, pu- to, to push back on that uh, because I've done, yeah, a lot, yeah. I've done a lot of, a lot of research on that. And apparently the estrogen that's present in soy is actually the type of estrogen that actually increases testosterone but I will leave it there and we will, uh, because again, neither of us are actual medical doctors. So yeah. it's all just, you know, articles we've read online and that kind of thing. So conversation for another time. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love hearing that though. And, and I tell my clients the same thing because a soy diet for one man is probably going to make them feel amazing. And I actually have those clients, but for another, it doesn't work. Um, but is it the diet or is it something else? Yeah, that's yeah. true. There's yeah, so many, so many factors at play, I suppose, which is interesting. And, Funnily enough, like uh, the podcast we had yesterday, uh, it talks a lot about environment. And I think 
environment can affect a lot of these different factors as well. You know, you going outside and getting enough sunlight, which gives you some energy yeah. and that kind of thing, you know, like there's so many variables, which I suppose uh, makes it a little bit harder, I suppose. It, so, it is. And um, people really love to have a reason why things are happening. Um, and the food is an easy one that they can control where your environment is harder. Emotions are even harder. So I, I think human nature where like, there's a piece of us that's programmed like, okay, what's the thing I can fix first. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like currently in this, in this day and age has happened quite rapidly. And I want to kind of dance around this very carefully because I'm not super educated on it, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, switching genders, like uh, people, ch- you know, changing genders and, and, you know, a lot of this whole like non-monogamy and different types of relationships are becoming more like prominent. Um, but I think like part of some of these different things are people feeling that they have the need to make changes, whether in their like physical gender or, you know, whether they think they need to go out and have, you know, sexual experiences with like a huge numbers of guys just to rebel and that kind of thing. Like there's obviously elements of ego there and that kind of thing. Like I think like, as I mentioned, like the marketplace right now is, is kind of chaotic. Like, is there any like negatives or positives that you've seen to kind of the, the younger generation of, of kind of people that are rebelling to social norms to just trying to trying to figure themselves out, I suppose. What are the negatives and positives that you've, that you've seen in, in that? Yeah, I have um, a colleague of mine, Mal Harrison. She's the director of the Center for Erotic Intelligence here in New York. And she talks about the tyranny of choice. Like, I think the number, the amount of choices we have, especially for young people, is absolutely overwhelming. Yeah. So, I mean, to ask a 13 or 14 or 18-year-old to figure out who they are like that's, that's a huge ask and certainly not a question I know I could have answered for myself at, at any of those ages. But what we have now is just this abundance of choice and this abundance of information and an abundance of possibilities. Um, and mostly that is good, right? Mostly knowing these things and having these options, it's good because if people can express themselves in ways that feel more authentic to who they are, um, I definitely would never argue against it. Uh, but I also, I see more depression and anxiety from people because they feel like they're not making the right choices. Yeah. Mm. And with the dating apps, like that's, you know, what it's all about. If choice number one doesn't work out, you don't really have to worry about it because there's choice number two, three, 120, you know, into the thousands. So it just gets, it's either depression, anxiety, or this constant search for something more and better, which, you know produces anxiety and depression mm. which is a, a larger kind of problem about our society really that's you know that's a lot of a lot of you know money and capitalism that's kind of conditioning these things into us that it's like you need more choice you need to buy more things and that kind of thing and it's obviously ripple effects into every part of our life and sex is a part of that as well yeah. so uh another uh, like good question i have i think is um you know, what are you looking forward to in the next kind of five years in your industry? Are you, are you working on any huge projects? Obviously, you mentioned VR before, but um, yeah, what is that kind of looking like from from your point of view? Yeah, I'm I'm continue to be excited by the femtech space, and this is the space of female sexuality and technology founders. So all of these beautiful com- um, companies that are popping up, like Dame and Unbound. Um, so, 
uh, Laura DiCarlo, like all of these, these companies that are really pushing the, the agenda of women's pleasure forward. So I'm excited to continue to see what happens there. On a personal front, um, I'm working on a book about survivors, uh, continuing to consult in the sex tech realm. Uh, it's, it's all exciting. The sex bot piece of things, I'm pulling those into my therapy for male adult virgins um, for the most part right now. And again, robots are not replacing anyone, but I'm, I'm just figuring out that's a beautiful learning tool. It's like a step A to get them to more human connection. Mm. Love it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, connection. Dan and I had a huge conversation about this yesterday, whether it's in relation to sex or just not, you know, the app culture and like our current way of communicating with people like, you know, there's a huge lack of connection globally right now. At least we're feeling that in our kind of generation. And uh, yeah, that, that needs to needs to improve. So anything that can that can improve that even, you know, sexually as well is obviously going to be a huge positive for for, for people in general. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my, I I love sending people like off the apps and to meetup events or, you know, my social network events, there's all kinds of, of course, you're still starting with an app, but then the app forces you to actually go and do things with people. So for most of my clients, I'm really pushing like, how do you connect? And I'm pushing eye connection or eye contact because that's how we express empathy. And that feels like the, a huge missing piece from what's happening in our culture today. Right. Yeah, definitely. And also one thing that you mentioned like early on in the interview uh, was through the the somatic psychology where you're looking for these nonverbal cues and you're looking for the movements in the body that potentially aren't actually displayed through a computer screen because it's two dimensional. Um, And I guess I'm curious if that that kind of space maybe could be explored through virtual reality or augmented reality or other technologies that might make it easier for people in remote locations to or therapists in remote locations to explore that. Um, I'm, I'm sure that will potentially come with, with time. Um, yeah. It's, um, I, I started working on a project a couple of years ago and I just need, you know, I need the backer and the money behind it, but to exactly to your point, um, which is why I work online is because I want to be able to reach more people, not just people living in New York, people in New York already have access to a lot of things, but what about, people in Arkansas, people in Romania, people in all of these countries that don't have it. So yeah, if we could create a VR platform to deliver sex therapy, to deliver dating, you know, coaching with dating, to help these people who don't have access to it and who really felt limited by their ability to connect, um, I think that would be huge. Mm. So is there one or a few kind of main messages that you really wish, you know, you've had all this experience kind of leading up leading up to your current point now that you really just wish kind of everyone, you know, if you could just give one message or a few messages out to kind of the whole world about, you know, sex and and this topic, like, what would that be? Is is there like something burning that you wish everyone could know? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Holy cow. I've had time to prepare. Um, I think you've heard me say it before and I'm sure as soon as we hang up, I'll be like, Oh my gosh. Um, there's no normal sex. So whatever sex you're having, it is, I'm pretty sure it's normal. Um, I've been doing long and this long enough, like there's, it takes a lot to surprise me and I still get very interested. Like I just had a client yesterday who told me something like that is super interesting. Like that's just really interesting what you do with your sexuality. Um, but it's all normal. Um, again, I feel like my trope is the sex positive. As long as it's consensual and pleasurable, it's okay. 
I feel like if people can just wrap their head around that, it would strip so much shame away. And a lot of our problems with sexuality is the shame that we attach to it. If we can just rid ourselves of that, I think people would be happier, more connected and in, in, in more fulfilling relationships. Mm, right. Yeah. And I think kind of part of that again, like is, you know, advertising and how like a lot of people kind of capitalize on that sex part of it, like makes it pushes the conversation further away from it being normalized. So it's like a lot of people, yeah, it's, it is this kind of shameful thing, even though it's like the most natural thing for a person to want after food and water and shelter. Yeah. Cause it's like, that's how we reproduce it's conditioned it's into us. You know, psychology. So, yeah, that's it, literally. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely not, not as normalized as it, as it should be, I think. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well said, but again, we're all the way back to the conversation about sex education. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and parents talking to their kids. So what we do at home and then what we do at the schools. So those are our two missing links. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were thinking about wrapping it up as we're getting close to, to the hour mark, and we know that you, you said you had uh, around an hour. So I think it's a really good time maybe to end it there. Is there any like last thoughts that you have, final fleeting thoughts before uh, we round this out? I don't think so. You guys asked some amazing questions. Um, I've had a great time. Um, wish I was there with you instead of here in New York. <laughs> you know, Brisbane is probably sunny and warm right now. Now it is a yeah, little too warm. In fact. Little, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you ever if you're ever in Australia, be sure to be sure to drop in, and we can we can host you an episode in the studio for sure. So oh, perfect. I think Dan, maybe I told you my whole household is Australian. Oh, really? I'm the only American. Yeah, I'm married to an Australian, and, and both my boys are um, citizens by descent. So we're coming. I'll, I'll oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. You can. We'll yeah. have a spot ready. We will have a spot in the studio. <laughs> so just on that, another question that, that that's just come to mind, like, you know, you're, you're talking about education, that kind of thing. Like, I don't know how old your two boys are, but have you, you know, started the education process with them? Yeah, they're they're too little for like the cognitive talk. They're so they're four and six, but right. sex education I feel like starts almost when they're born. So we are not shameful about our bodies. I mean, we don't walk around naked, but we're like you know we just it's an open conversation, and we use the right names for body parts. Um, oh my gosh, I don't know if this was a mom fail or a mom score. My little one had just finished going to the bathroom and he said something. And I said, so what do boys have? And he said, a penis. And I said, so what do girls have? He said, periods. (laughs) (laughs) He's not wrong. (laughs) He's not. I'm like, okay, yeah, we missed the part, but we got one of the functions. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because I you know I forgot which guest it was, but it was on a, a Norbury Marcus podcast, and you know he mentions that like you know he's more into like fitness and that kind of thing. So you know having vitamin D from the sun is very important to him. So he makes a point every single day to go outside in his backyard with his family entirely naked to normalize that to get some sun all over his body and that kind of thing. And that was a very interesting concept that I heard because it's like you know. Yeah, we may be getting sun and that kind of thing, but are you getting sun all over your body and that kind of thing? And so it's like being outside and being naked, like being okay and being comfortable with yourself. Like that, I don't know, that was just another interesting yeah. kind of thing. I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, it's it's just not taboo. There's nothing secretive or, or wrong about it. And um, I've asked other parents about this and they say, you'll just, you'll know. Um, and because I have two boys, you'll know when it starts to feel awkward. Like, you know, just trust your gut. Like there'll be a moment where like, okay, I, I, don't, I'm not naked in front of you guys anymore. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. 
Well, yeah, we've uh, covered a lot in in this episode. So, yeah, we just want to thank you so much for for jumping on. We haven't really had an opportunity to explore more topics like this one, so it's really exciting for us and and our fan base as well. So, um, yeah, super good stuff, and and we definitely hope to to get you on again in the future. Oh, I would love it. Thank you guys so much. It's been it's been fun. Thank you so much. We'll have a fantastic evening, and we will have a fantastic day. <laughs> yes, yeah, we do. Thank you for getting up so early. Uh, thank you fine. again, Holly. Appreciate it.